This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Why Can't I Get It Together? Written and narrated by Jamie Ivey, host of the Happy Hour Podcast. It is available now everywhere you get your audiobooks. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With you no good, Ann Camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. How you feeling, brother? I am doing really well, Justin. How are you? I can't complain, brother. You know, a lot has been going on. You actually came to the city. You, you actually came to, to, to the city of Atlanta to come uh, hang out. We're actually doing this together at one time this is the first time we've actually done this in per- in person uh and i'm just i'll be honest with you brother i'm just happy happy that you got out of the chicago weather and got to something a little better how, how you feeling man it's so good i went outside uh two days in a row with no coat on uh and that's that's just awesome to do in the uh month of february and march because the day is march so i'm getting it uh, i'm getting it in here in atlanta so thank y'all for hosting well, brother, we are always happy to have you. Uh, glad you made it, made it out. We had some good conversations. You, me, uh, Oshabar Hartman, who's the vice president of outreach here at the AND campaign. We had a good time, but also did some planning, some conversations, a lot of big things coming for the AND campaign and beyond. So y'all going to have to stay tuned for some of that. As usual, we got a whole lot of stuff to talk about today. A lot has been going on. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think like not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And the first subject that we're going to talk about is Trump, a Trump speech that we got recently. He kind of came out of hiding and started making some 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 comments. And so uh, Trump gave a 90 minute speech at at the Conservative Political Action Conference, which is also known as CPAC. This is one of the biggest events for conservative politics of the year. And let me tell you something. It was all about Trump. Nothing but Trump. Not one speaker challenged Trumpism. And someone even rolled in a golden statue, which has some some biblical significance, quite possibly, but a golden statue of Trump. Trump Jr. jokingly called CPAC. TPAC, the Trump Political Action Conference. And and really, that's what it, it seemed like. I mean, if you watched it very closely and if you listen to the speech, which was very long, which I you know struggled to get through, but but made it through. Uh, Trump touched on quite a few different subjects in this 90 minutes. He started off talking about the idea uh, that was or the rumor that was floating around about him starting a, a new party. Uh, he said that that rumor was fake news and he's not surprised that they would put that fake news out there. He hit on a practical point by saying, look, I know that would only divide our votes and it would only ensure that uh, Republicans lost. And so he said that was not going to happen. Uh, he was going to stick with the Republican Party, because as far as I can tell this, he is the Republican Party. Uh, he talked about defeating cancel culture. He talked about defending the Second Amendment and how the Second Amendment would be under attack with the Biden administration. And there was just a lot of attacks on Biden, which I guess could be expected. Um, it seemed like Trump was saying that Biden had somehow already ruined many of the much of the great work that Trump had done. 
Uh, and so he he really focused in and, and set his sights on on Biden and, and went hard on him, even though it's only what a month or so into uh, that administration. And he predicted that Democrats would lose decisively in 2024. And in making that comment, he later teased the idea of him running again while reiterating that he felt that the race was stolen from him. So he said that he might have to run again and win for a third time. And that uh, got a huge applause, um, which is interesting to me. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, And then he kind of, you know, one of the other things that he said was that, hey, there has never been a movement in the world like Make America Great Again ever. So that's pretty deep. One of the things that they always do at CPAC is that they take a straw poll and they take a straw poll to see who's most likely to win the GOP, the GOP presidential nomination in 2024. Uh, this is something they call the straw poll. And they, they always kind of uh, try to see what's, what's going on and where the people are at. Now, I do want to say when we talk about the Republican Party and we talk about CPAC, CPAC isn't all Republicans don't go to CPAC. Right. These are going to be your more. Uh, far right kind of conservatives that are going to be there. So it's not everybody, but it's a decent representation of that base of the Republican base. And so when they did the the initial straw poll, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis won that straw poll uh, uh, at and he he came in at 43 percent of of, of the vote. Uh, Then second to that was South Dakota Governor Nikki Noam uh, was was number two. But that was the poll without Trump. Right. So there was a poll from what I can understand and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a poll that didn't have Trump in it. Then there was a poll that Trump was one of the options in the in the poll that Trump was one of the option, options. He came in number one with 55 percent of the vote. DeSantis uh, came in second in, in that particular one. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, it seems like a losing strategy to me uh, for the Republicans if they were go, if they were to go this route. But I don't think the Trump obsession is even about winning anymore. Um, sometimes it seems like it's more about owning the libs, uh, rejecting that every everything that the other side believes. But I just don't see how this is a winning strategy unless you think that the election was stolen. So I, I want to hear a little bit about what my co-host has to say about CPAC and really about what this might mean for Republicans and conservatives in general. Well, you know, Justin, like you, I... Um did the exercise there's nothing uh, more intellectually stimulating than 90 minutes of Donald Trump. Uh, but I did uh, do the exercise. And I, I don't know uh, if folks at, at CPAC drew all of the conclusions that I did, but certainly, uh, like you, I heard a speech that was primarily about Donald Trump. Uh, you know, he did out of that 90 minutes, he contributed uh, a, a a good number of those minutes defining Trumpism, not even trying to define conservatism or republicanism, but defining Trumpism uh, and touting, touting Trumpism. Uh, he, he said that his movement was the greatest the world has ever seen uh, and that he has heard adulation uh, that not even Ronald Reagan received uh, from Republicans. I mean, it, it was it was the kind of thing that uh, is a little bit hard to listen to, especially um, when you know that so many believers are there and you see that they roll in literally a gold-plated image uh, of Donald Trump. And I can't see how that imagery is is lost on uh, 
on Bible-believing Christians. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I do hope, though, that uh, some of the stuff that we see coming out of CPAC will actually follow history. I mean, uh, the CPAC straw poll, uh, I, I think there were, uh, there are like three folks who have won the straw poll and went on to win the nomination, like, since they've been doing it for like 41 years. Um, so maybe that's a good sign. Um, that that things are going to uh, turn for the better. Maybe uh, somewhere uh, in that room, and, and, and you know, it, maybe it didn't get publicized on television uh, and in the media, which it probably wouldn't, but maybe somewhere in that room there were uh, some Shatracks and Meshach and Abednego's uh, who will not bow to the golden image, right? Um, and I think that's the, the, the best thing that we can uh, hope for because the 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 thing that was was super problematic uh, for me is this once again in the speech you see this really terrible um, mixture this attempt to intertwine uh, Christian faith uh, and uh, American nationalism uh, in a in an unhealthy way as if there is uh, one something about the United States that is uh, lifted up above every other nation of the world um, for some reason in the, in the eyes of God in heaven. Um, and I think you're, you're going towards some, some difficult things when you start making those assertions. Uh, and then uh, when you have the standard bearer uh, for a movement that is going to say, we are standing up for uh, the cause of, of Christian values and Judeo-Christian values, uh, and the person who's that standard bearer is just simply not going to live by those values. Um, I think that's hugely problematic. So my hope and my prayer is that I didn't see everything. Uh, I've, I've been in a lot of spaces where uh, folks report on it and they don't have the whole story. They don't know uh, all that has taken place. My hope and my prayer um, is that there really are folks uh, inside of the conservative movement, maybe even inside of that room. Uh, who have just a bit more clarity um, and are going to do something about it. So I'm, I'm going to remain hopeful. Well, Chris, I, I, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the chances that there was somebody inside that room uh, that, that was about to stand up like, like the Hebrew boys is, are slim. That, that probably didn't happen now. I do think that there are people inside the Repo- Republican Party and, and that are conservative that would probably disagree with what was going on. But uh Outside of that, bro, I can't. Don't get your hopes up. Don't hold your breath. Um, A few things stuck out to me, though. I think you made some really good points about, I mean, this was just Trumpism, right? It it was all about Trumpism. He was outlining where it is today, you know, going over the conspiracy theories, all the things that got us to where we are, right? So it was almost like a flashback. We had been without that kind of commentary for a while because he's, you know, no longer the president. He's no longer on Twitter, all that stuff. So we hadn't really had to deal with it the same way. But there are a few things that stuck out to me. One of the main themes was that he was the defender of conservative Americans, right? I'm your defender. I'm the person that defends you. Um, he was the person that was fighting against the evil progressives on behalf of the conservatives. And he's the one that was martyred politically for doing so. Now, it's the type of martyr that can kind of rise up and do it again, I guess. I've heard that once before and probably a bad comparison. But... He was martyred doing this. 
and he can, may, may come back and keep doing it. Um, he made other countries respect us, right? He put America first. I'm bringing you back. I mean, we can both agree that MAGA was a strong message, right? We didn't necessarily like the message. We didn't think it was historically accurate or anything that we wanted to go back to. But it was a strong, short, very strong message message that pulled up imagery in your head and made certain people relate and identify with what he was saying. And this speech to me was kind of drawing back on that. The other thing I noticed was that there was a lot of fear mongering, especially when it came to the issue of immigration. Right. I mean, when he talked about immigration, he was going in. He said that there was a massive flood of illegal immigrants that were rushing the border. You know, this urgent, immediate issue. Uh, He at times referred to these folks as child and drug smugglers killers, rapists. He talked about the drug cartels and all that stuff. Um, And the the focus and the language that he used when looking, you know, when talking about immigration, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Right. This is a very galvanizing message on the right. This is a very galvanizing issue. When you talk about the Republican base, this is their issue. I mean, according to a a recent poll done by Echelon Insight, illegal immigration is the number one concern for Republicans. Not the economy. Not education, not child poverty, illegal immigration. Right. Followed by a lack of support for police. I think uh, Antifa violence is on there somewhere, somewhere in the top 10. And that's interesting. And then when you look at that same poll and you look at the Democrats, their number one, check this out, the number one concern of Democrats in this poll was Trump supporters. Not education, not child poverty, not the economy, Trump supporters. So you have two sides that are deathly afraid of each other. Two sides are saying the worst thing that's going on in this country is the other guy. And we've got to do everything to stop them. Even before we get to child. Yeah, we may get to child poverty. We'll get to some of these other stuff. We'll get to, you know, racism and all that. But first, we've got to deal with these Trump supporters as if they're going to disappear. Or we got to deal with, you know, these illegal immigrants as if they're going to disappear. And that's just a problem. I mean, I know when you're talking about the Democrats' biggest fear, when they say it's Trump supporters, most people are going to point to the Capitol insurrection, right? But I think even if we point to the Capitol insurrection, which was no small thing, I think we still need to say something to Christian Democrats and Republicans. And it's that neither illegal immigration nor Trump supporters should be your biggest concern. Not with everything going on right now. You need to turn off cable news and you need to stop listening to lead leaders who are fear mongering. Now, I'm not saying that either of those issues don't matter. We've already talked about the importance of immigration reform. In fact, we talked about it uh, last episode, I believe. We've talked about some of some of the white national nationalism inside of the Trump support. Maybe not everybody, but too many. And that needs to be dealt with. But in the middle of a crisis with all these Americans hurting and all that's going on, it's hard to make a real case that that should be your number one concern as if 
every day there's just illegal immigrants running down every street and, you know, busting up, you know, taking over America or there's Trump supporters in your city everywhere you're at, just taking over everything and, and, and ruining your day and ruining the country. Now, we're not going to downplay how bad the Capitol insurrection was. We've already talked about that, too. Those people need to be punished. But no matter what MSNBC says to keep you afraid and keep you tuned in, Trump supporters aren't your biggest issue right now. There's so many other things going on locally and all around the country for you to say, that's my number one concern today. It can be a concern. It's a concern for me. No matter what Fox News says, at this moment, illegal immigrants aren't about to take over America and kick you out and take everything you have. Chill. Take a deep breath and turn off cable news. Because what we have going on right now is people that are basing their whole perspective on fear, on their opposition, and they're letting people manipulate them through this fear mongering and it's got to stop chris yeah I, I think you said it uh justin but that that's actually the last note that i had about this whole thing is that uh it just furthers the distraction um and it it, it gets people focused on um this little issue i mean even preparing for this uh podcast and and listening to the speech and and watching different clips uh from uh, CPAC, I even uh, just had to keep encouraging myself that it's a good investment because I'm preparing for uh, for the podcast. But uh, we can't spend our, our time doing that. I mean, I, I just encourage people, like, get in your community, talk to actual people, look around your own life um, and identify what the real issues are there. Um, and I don't know, uh, Justin, it might be because I'm here in Atlanta and don't have to put on a heavy coat. Um, but I, I, I feel very hopeful uh, this morning that as, uh, as folks keep pushing, pushing this message, uh, that, that people will uh, somehow figure out how to get beyond the distractions, really on both sides of the aisle, um, and get to the stuff that's really hurting people. Uh, in their communities, because if, if we keep leaning to the media distractions uh, and the distractions that the the kind of big leaders on both sides of the aisle uh, want us to focus on, what we do is we let them off the hook, um, and they don't actually have to produce anything uh, that actually changes something in the the real lives of real people, um, because we're so focused on the distraction that we we won't hold them uh, accountable in in practical and measurable ways. Um, and so it was, it was a little bit, uh, discouraging, honestly, to watch it. But, um, you know, uh, as Reverend Jackson says in Chicago, we have to keep hope alive. We have to find a way to keep hope alive. And again, as bad as the insurrection on the Capitol was, that wasn't 50% of America. That wasn't 30% of America, right? And anybody who tells you that it is, or that most people supported that, even if people dismissed it too quickly, most people are not OK with what happened. It should have never happened. But that ain't your biggest issue. Um, illegal immigrants right now, with everything going on, it's something that has to be addressed. But it's not your number one issue. The reason it's your number one issue is because you got people fear mongering and we got to get out of that uh, out of that mindset. All right, man, that's the first uh, piece of this, man. We will be right back after a quick, quick break. 
All right, Nan Camp, we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with some more things to talk about. Now, there has been a lot of discussion about what President Joe Biden's foreign policy will look like. Uh, He's obviously going to go in a different direction as Trump, but that doesn't tell us a whole lot. That still leaves a whole lot of options on the table because there's a whole lot of uh, strategies you could have. Now, every president, every American president is pretty much expected to have philosophies or a set of principles that clearly guide their foreign policy. And sometimes we call this their doctrine, their foreign policy doctrine. So, for instance, you have the Truman, the Truman doctrine. This is the doctrine of or the foreign policy of uh, President Harry Truman. And and, and the Truman doctrine was really about enlightened self-interest, which is basically helping others so that in the end it would help you. And it was about containment. He basically said that America would give political, military and economic help to other nations, especially democratic uh, countries that were facing authoritarian threats and that they would make try to do that in making sure that they didn't let those threats spread. So that's the containment, right? You don't want those threats to, to spread. So you contain them where they are and you give help to folks who have who are facing authoritarian threats. He detailed this particular doctrine in a speech that he gave on March 12, 1947. So that's the Truman Doctrine, a very important doctrine because it shaped how America did foreign policy for a long time. Then you have something like the Bush Doctrine. And this is George W. Bush. The Bush Doctrine was about preemptive strikes. Bush asserted the legitimacy of preventive attacks, right? What Bush basically said is that if you are not with us, then you're against us and that we would no longer follow the Truman Doctrine in regard to containment or the Reagan Doctrine, which was about protecting freedom fighters. We would respond to the war on terror because, again, these presidents are dealing with different things. Right. Bush is dealing with the war on terror. He basically said we'll respond to that by bombing first, as Tupac once said. This would lead to the Iraq war. This would uh, lead to what a lot of people say are regrettable kind of uh, 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 conflicts that we got into that probably shouldn't have gotten into. And some people say it's just it's just not ethical. Right. To, to bomb first, to hit, you know, to hit somebody because you think they're about to do something or you think they have something that in certain cases they don't have. Then we have the Obama doctrine. According to Obama himself, the Obama doctrine was about engaging the enemy while preserving our nation's capabilities. Some would say that this was best reflected in the much criticized drone attacks that we saw coming from the uh, Obama administration. So what 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 this is what this they're trying to do here is they want to strike but without a lot of commitment. They want to strike without taking a whole lot of risk. Now some folks might say that this was successful, right? You want to you want you want to hit somebody and not take a hit yourself. Others would say it's not ethical and others would say that it caused or carried on what some people are calling forever wars or these never ending wars like we had in Afghanistan where you're doing something, but you're never really doing enough to end it. And it just keeps going on and on and on again. Now, the Obama doctrine was never as clear as some of the others, but that's one take on what that Obama doctrine was. Then you have what was the Trump doctrine, uh, which was based on what that administration called principled realism. 
right? And this principled realism was coupled with, of course, like we just talked about, that America first policy, which really led how we engage other countries throughout the Trump administration. And in some ways, it was based on Trump's negotiating style, right? He played hardball with other countries. He played hardball even with our allies. And you saw a lot of progressives had a problem with that. I'll be honest. I didn't always have a problem with that. I didn't always feel like you can be buddy buddy with people. Sometimes you do need to say, hey, this isn't fair. We need to fix this. Uh, I think while people reject, as I do, while people a lot of a lot of people reject Trump's general posture when it came to foreign policy, I think he did some terrible things that just weren't thoughtful. I don't know that everybody's rejecting, for instance, how he went back and forth with China when it came to trade. I mean, China is doing some manipulative, manipulative things when it comes to trade, and he played hardball with them. So depending on who you ask, you'll get a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different opinions on these uh, these doctrines when it comes to foreign policy. But it's important in this administration to be looking for what that doctrine might be, to be looking at how their actions over time are articulating the principles and their view of how we should deal with the world. So what will the Biden doctrine look like? Well, there's something that significant that happened recently that may tell us a little bit something uh, may tell us a little bit about that. As many of you know, uh, there was an airstrike on Syria uh, on I guess that was last Thursday. Um, And that airstrike, nobody nobody really saw it coming. Uh, Congress didn't really even know that it was coming. Biden says that the strike was consistent with America's right to self-defense. He's saying I was protecting the American people. He said it was a response to attacks on you to Syrian attacks on U.S. targets in Iran. Uh, Now, again, this this attack happened without any congressional authorization. Um, But he didn't really have to give Congress authorization. He just had to tell them within 48 hours. Now, there's a big debate that that's just a bad policy. Not that he broke the policy or not that he did anything illegal, but just that he should have to say something to Congress before you bomb some folks. Adding to the complexities of this situation. The militias that were struck were Iranian backed. And Iran condemned these airstrikes as we're trying to enter into agreements with them and renegotiate some things. This is getting pretty deep. Now, when I talk about military strikes and just military actions, I'm not in the military. I realize that there's a lot of information out there that we just don't have. So I try not to assume exactly a whole lot. I mean, maybe we could bring an expert or something like that. But I, I, I'm going to tell you up front that as we analyze this, I try not to say too early whether it was right or wrong, because there's so much intel and so many things going on that we have nothing, know nothing about. But we can tell you about kind of the reactions from Congress. We can tell you about you know, general doctrines and, and, and what this might say for the future. Uh, but I want to see what Chris has to say, man. What is your what are your thoughts on the Syrian strike? The, oh, you know, what Biden's policy might be and, and so on. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, like you, Justin, I'm not in the military. Uh, I also think that, you know, uh, foreign policy is one of those things that is a lot easier uh, to judge and analyze the further removed you are from uh, a, a presidency. Um, and so it, it is very important to look for uh, early clues as to how foreign policy 
going to unfold in the Biden administration. Um, but, you know, it, it is going to unfold. Uh, what, what we do see early here, though, and I think it's something that's important uh, to any uh, president's uh, foreign policy, uh, is consistency um, and, and sort of a, a coordination and, and a, a thorough integrity throughout the entire administration, the philosophy of government um, and how America is going to approach the world. Um, and so you do have to ask questions. You know, you're bombing uh, Syria, Iranian-backed uh, militia in Syria while you're renegotiating uh, or at least trying to re-enter, um, you know, the, the nuclear deal uh, with Iran. And so when you think about consistency, it's like how you transition from the Trump uh, doctrine smoothly into uh, a Biden-style foreign policy. I don't think you can do that, like, in, in a huge leap. But then the other thing is, like, I see too much inconsistency personally with, um, with what is happening on the domestic policy side, right? Uh, here, the president of the United States um, has and is defending um, a, a bombing. I mean, like this is like a military strike. I mean, I'm I'm not in the military, and and I'm, I'm not. I don't live in the Middle East. Never been to the Middle East, uh, but I try to imagine uh, uh, that, and I think we can imagine that this is impactful uh, in in those communities and to those people. It's impactful to our foreign policy. Uh, is not insignificant. Uh, and the president went ahead with this uh, without, you know, certainly without the approval of Congress. If you listen to certain uh, senators and how they responded, it, it almost seems like without really uh, much of a consultation uh, with Congress, um, not a whole lot of heads up to allies. Uh, and, and here is the same president, though, who's telling us inside the United States that we can't increase the minimum wage because of the uh, advisement of the Senate parliamentarian, uh, that we can't um, do anything about student loans because of a legal memo uh, from uh, his own education department. And I believe in, you know, Proverbs eleven fourteen in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Um, and so, you know, I, I just feel like if you want us to go along with, you know, we can't do minimum wage because we got advice from the Senate parliamentarian. We can't do anything about student loan debt because, uh, you know, the DOE wrote uh, this legal memo. Um, it's really hard to, to hear that on one side and then hear that we did a, a whole military action without much consultation with, with members of Congress uh, or even allies in, in the uh, in the international community, uh, that makes it a little bit more difficult of a, of a pill to swallow. So you really just going to force domestic policy into this foreign policy conversation? <laughs> He's like, I'm going to get that out. But no, it, 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 there, there are parallels there, right? Because when you want to get something done, you do what you got to do to get it done. When you don't want to do some, get something done, you can find all these technicalities and all that stuff. And I think people are just ready for the Biden administration to do what they say they're going to do when it comes to poverty, when it comes to COVID, they have a, a, a huge opportunity right in front of them, but it doesn't seem like they're being as aggressive on that domestic policy as they are with this foreign policy and, and, and the strike they had. Now, again, we don't know everything that's going on behind it. Uh, but 
We want to make sure that it's consistent. And I want to and, you know, let's listen to the experts. Right. Let's listen to some of the senators who are, you know, who have some expertise in this conversation over time to hear whether this was the right thing. And once we hear this and you, you'll hear some of this on the Church Politics podcast, then we may maybe can push back or ask, ask more questions, you know, make sure that we're getting more answers about what happens, what happened and what might happen in the future. But again, the military is complex. They can't tell us everything that they might do or, or, or you know, would would like to do. in future. They can't give you the whole plan because when they give you the whole plan, every everybody else sees it. So it, it's really tough, but they can be there should still be a level of transparency. And I, I think some of even the 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 Democrats were saying, no, 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 we need more transparency uh, as we proceed because we don't want to go down the road that we've been down before. One more break and we will be back and camp. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the Ann Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility. This is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. All right, folks, in this final segment, I want to talk about an article. Uh, one of my favorite writers is a uh, New York Times commentator, Ross Douthit. Uh, and he wrote an article on Sunday entitled The Twilight of the Anti-Trump Idols. And he starts off with this quote. He says this. He says, throughout the Trump presidency and especially in the covid era, there was a gr- there was a quest for figures that could be held up as an embodiment of everything that Trump's opposition wanted to restore. Reason, technical competence, idealism. Over time, these figures took on the character of familiar dramatic archetypes. The good Republican, the heroic whistleblower, the beleaguered expert, the tough blue state governor, the wise and sophisticated Europeans. Douthat then goes to talk about how Kumo, uh, the, 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 the governor of New York, came to represent the tough blue state governor and became sort of an idol in that regard. And now we see, while he was getting praised while uh, Trump was in office, we see that his COVID response was really, really bad and really dishonest. And it's causing him greater problems right now. We also see that there were some harassment allegations out there that are just coming out now. I mean, it's it's getting rough on, on Kumo. It, I'll be surprised almost if he makes it. I mean, this this is getting really rough. I think there's three allegations out there now, along with the, you know, the misreporting of, of the deaths in New York. This is just a lot to hang on to. Uh, I don't know how long he will last 
if he does last through this term, it's very hard to see him him being uh, uh, elected again. But then he goes on to say, when you when you're talking about the uh, the 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 wise and sophisticated Europeans, when you look at France and many of those other countries, they've been everything but wise and sophisticated when when it comes to their vaccine rollout. Many of these countries, except Britain, which is Brexited, so they're not even really part of this group as much as much anymore. Most of these countries are way behind the United States when it comes to their rollout. They're just not where they need to be on this. But we had painted them for so long because they didn't get along with Trump or because they criticized Trump as this wise and sophisticated group who was listening to science and had it all right. That was the narrative that you heard over and over again. But when you really get to the facts, when you dig into the facts that we don't ask for, because sometimes we just want the narrative. You start to see that it wasn't what it seemed to be. And that these folks are behind us and we just had a new administration transition. That's deep. But then you also see the good Republicans, the Lincoln Project that actually put ads out against Trump and was trying to make sure that Trump lost. They get hit with some really tough scandal allegations that pretty much brought that organization to its knees. Uh, Some allegations about uh, sexual harassment and things of that nature that they covered up and that they knew about. It's being said. But they didn't act on it. And now that group who became this archetype that was anti-Trump has fallen as well. Douthat goes on to say this twilight for the anti-Trump idols should be a teachable moment in two ways. First, it's a reminder that the problem of media failure in the Trump era does not begin and end with the conservative bubble. Right. We saw what was wrong with conservative media and what they did and all that. But that wasn't that wasn't the problem by itself. He goes on to say, he said, Trump's outsized awfulness concealed the sins and follies of others. All right. And then he also says that the that it made the anti-Trump media fall into narrative conformity and that they were slow to critique their own narratives. So you have all these media outlets with the same narrative when it comes to Trump and when it comes to the people they see as you know, their idols to fight against Trump. And they weren't they weren't critiquing those those narratives and those narratives ended up being wrong because they weren't doing their jobs as journalists. We basically took on the, the narrative or the posture that it's good as long as it's the opposite of Trump. It's good as long as it's the opposite of what red states are doing at that moment. Sometimes that might be right. But politics is more complex than that. Life is more complex than that. You not only have to critique the bad guy or the person who's in opposition to your ideological leanings or your party leanings. But you have to realize that sometimes there's more than one bad guy. Imagine that. Sometimes the bad guy is on your team. Sometimes the bad guy is at your right hand. I know a story in the Bible where there was a bad guy at the right hand of somebody good. The only one that was good. And sometimes a bad guy is in your skin. Chris, I'm, I'm going to let you take it from here. But this is this is a pretty deep article, man. I, I, I enjoy reading it. I was almost uh, not ready to uh, to get in here, Justin. You were preaching uh, over there. So um, this article, though, is so on point. Uh, you know, I, I noticed some of the same things that you just talked about. I also. Uh, 
I like where, where Josh that raises up this this idea that it wasn't wrong for media to to look for uh, these kind of uh, Trump foils. Uh, it was wrong to invent them. Um, and you know, e- even you know, I'll you know, cross over again, bring domestic policy into foreign policy. We talk about the last two segments in this one um, because we see the same thing, uh, you know, getting ready to repeat itself uh, if we let it. Um, you know, Trump jumps up, then we'll have to make everything uh, anti-Trump, invent things to be opposite. Uh, of him, make him wrong, maybe in ways that uh, that he may not be. I mean, when 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 you look at uh, you know, I think about uh, domestic policy and foreign policy together, right? Because one of the big things that Trump's foreign policy did was say that our foreign policy is going to uh, have to be in concert and uh, you know support what we're trying to do with domestic policy. We're not going to sacrifice domestic policy uh, for the sake of foreign objectives. And I don't know that that's something that is completely rejected by, uh, you know, the large cross-section of uh, of American citizens. Um, But we get ourselves in trouble when we allow folks to oversimplify and greatly reduce uh, political discourse uh, to a kind of thing that we all know doesn't really exist. Um, you know, it, it is it's this idea uh, that I'm becoming more and more passionate about uh, that we really have to figure out how to bring politics home again uh, and not give everything uh, over to, uh, to media and to so-called experts when it comes to just processing stuff, right? Like everybody in the society has a role to play, a perspective to offer. Um, And when we bring politics home, certain things just have to pass like common sense tests. Like the world does not exist in these kind of perfect binaries, you know, Cuomo good, Trump bad, uh, Europe great, United States uh, poor. Like people know instinctively when we step out of this kind of like media hypnosis uh, for a moment. We know instinctively that life is not that way. The world does not uh, exist that way, uh, but we get sucked into it um, and, and and it reduces how we get involved. And so if we can figure out how to take our politics home, practice, um, you know, what we talked about a, a few shows ago, this, this media hygiene, right, where we're not, overdosing on cable news uh, as we are consuming media. Um, you know, we're looking around for different sources and thinking the, the worldview that they're coming from. So we can try to make some of our own decisions um, and begin to rebuild a political discourse that's based in real life and, um, you know, the experiences of all of us and not just the perspective of, uh, of media who are too prone to the kind of thing that Dowd that described uh, in the article, but I think one of the one of the antidotes for it uh, just might be a slightly more engaged uh, grassroots when it comes to how we uh, think about and process what's happening uh, in political discourse. 
Man, that's really something to think about. I mean, it goes to, too, just the nationalization of politics and just these two groups. Like people in the, you know, you start, you stop seeing people thinking different regionally and locally and all this because it's these two large groups of thought and one is right and one is wrong. And that's the end of the conversation. Uh, We want y'all to think a little bit harder than that because we think y'all a little bit smarter than that. And we think you can be led into unfaithful positions when you dumb down politics. And so I think what one of the things we have to say from this is don't dumb down politics. Don't create these idols just because you want something to to go against the, the person that you don't like. If there are people there who are doing the right thing, then you can highlight them. But you don't get to create them unless you're going to go in there and be that person to do differently. So let's let's just think a little harder on this. Uh, a quote that I'll end this conversation with is, is another Douthat quote from this article, which he says, our society's sickness may be particularly acute in Trump worship, but the affliction is more general. The stink of failure hangs over the liberal and the cosmopolitan as well as the populist and provincial. Think about that for a second. As always, and campaign, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, and camp. Well, I'll let you. Kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord. I say kingdom. kingdom.